more intimate and close-knit than uh, earlier. Let's do it. Let's do it. Uh, my name is Nick Edrick. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Bill Baptist. And I wonder, have you ever been in a situation where you're talking to someone and they just keep talking about this topic and they go on and on and on and on? Um, a few chuckles in the room. I'm sure uh, you've been in that situation where someone's talking about something and they can't help but talk about it. I, I found myself in that situation last night. I was um, uh, dealing with some friends and, uh, and I was talking about... Um, uh, some of the drum stuff I've been uh, experimenting recently, some cymbal stacks and uh, some sound experiments and some stuff I've built. And, and I realized at one point during this conversation that the people that I was talking to weren't as invested in this discussion as I was. But I kept on talking. <laughs> what drives us to, to be in that place where we can't, just can't help but talk about something. For me, last night it was my, my love of drums and music and percussion. What is it that drives us to tell people about Jesus? What is it, what is it that drives us, that, that leads us in that? In the evening service, we're going through a short series exploring through the Psalms the themes of healing and of growing. And today, I'm going to unpack Psalm 145 to look at the theme of being sent. And what is it that sends us? Uh, why are we sent on mission? What is it that, that drives us to be on mission, to tell people about God? Is it the, the desperate need of a world that doesn't know Jesus? Absolutely. Is it that God commands his people uh, to go out and be on mission? Absolutely. But I would say, Psalm 145, let's say below and before all of that, it's, it's our praise of God's character, His kingdom, and that He's coming to save, that leads us to tell others about Him. Now, Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers from uh, a couple of generations ago, he said um, that this psalm is David's favorite psalm. As a big claim, because King David wrote a whole lot of psalms, and um, it's probably, Charles uh, says it's probably because this psalm is labeled a praise psalm of David, and it's actually the only psalm that's, that's uh, labeled a praise psalm. Most others are labeled a psalm of David, or a psalm of the song of the plural, or whoever, but this is a praise psalm. Uh, so it's not cryptic about what this psalm is all about. It also finds, in terms of like where it is in the structure of this collection of songs, that is the book of Psalms, it comes at, towards the end, uh, just before a massive crescendo and an epic praise chorus of uh, Psalm 146, 7, 8, 9, 50, 150. So those last five Psalms are these like epic um, mountaintop praise Psalms. It's all about uh, shouting and singing and praising God. And everyone starts and finishes with praise the Lord. And so there's a big peak at the end of Psalms. And then this Psalm 145 that leads into that is like the, the bridge in a song that builds up and leads into the massive praise chorus. So again, it's not it's not too hard to figure out what this psalm is all about. So we're gonna read it together, we're gonna explore um, what this psalm is about, and we're gonna 
explore uh, what praise is and what leads us to praise. Uh, so if you've got a Bible, open it up to Psalm 145. Uh, if you open your Bible to the middle, you'll likely be in the Psalms. You can flip forward or back um, to hit 145. It's also going to be on the screen. Uh, we'll read. Just we'll start off by just reading the first seven verses together. <clears throat> King David says, "I will extol you, my God and my King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord." And greatly to be praised, his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another, shall declare your mighty acts. And on, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness, and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. So we hear all those different words that David uses for praise. Uh, he's an excellent songwriter. And I think at this point he, he must have a source in front of him. There's all these different words he uses to express praise. Uh, he says exalt or extol, which is about lifting up. And um, uh, blessing, you know, he uh, translates uh, the next term, praise. Or like boasting and, and building up, lifting up, um, commending, declaring. Uh, meditating, speaking, pour forth, or NIV translates it, uh, celebrate. It's that idea of just can't help talking about it. Uh, singing, David says. All these words uh, that used to describe praise, it shows us what praise is about. It's about speaking. It's about telling. It's about having a commun communication. And if, if you're not convinced, have skim down to verse 21. It says, my mouth, my mouth will speak in praise of the Lord, that every creature praise is holy name forever and ever. Praise is not about what, what our hands are doing, what our mouth is doing. It's about speaking. And I would put it that it's speaking to three different people, three different groups. The first is speaking to God. The first two verses is this little conversation that um, David has with God, first three verses, sorry. And um, it's, it's fascinating. The word that, that um, uh, the EXV translates praise, the second half of verse one, the first half of verse two, that word is, um, NIV translates bless, and it's actually the same word that's used to describe the act of kneeling, of kneeling down. And it, it, it shows us a bit about what um, praise is about. And it's interesting seeing how um, how David uses this word in context in these two verses and the, the kind of position where he's putting himself and God. He says, I will exalt, I will lift up my God and my King, and I will kneel in praise of your name. He says, I will kneel in praise uh, of you every day, and I will lift up, exalt boast of your name forever and ever. So that act of praise is an act of humbling himself and exalting God. Now if you were to look at it physically, if I were to bring, I could bring Sarah, Jennifer, help me out with this. Don't, you don't have to do anything. Just say that. So right now, 
I'm a little bit taller than Sarah. <laughs> and then, like, physically, it looks like She's I'm the, the more important one is because I'm taller than above. But if I were to kneel, and it, this, it changes that dynamic entirely. What, you know, the message I'm sending to Sarah, to everyone wants to meet, is that Sarah is more important than me. I'm exalting her and I'm humbling myself. And that's, that's that act of praise. And that's what David does with God. He sets himself uh, below and sets God in his rightful place as greater. <coughs> and think of who's writing this. Like who, who is King David? He was the greatest king of all of Israel's history. Under, under King David, Israel saw the greatest, most success and prosperous time they ever knew. Uh, he was an amazing musician and a great leader, a wonderful choir. Um, but he doesn't boast in his own. He doesn't boast in his own achievement. He doesn't set himself above anyone else in here. He kneels and lifts up God's name. He calls God God's greatness is unsearchable. It's unfathomable. We can talk about how great God is forever and still have more to say. This, this helps us think about the kind of songs we sing in church. I think I think we think really good songs and health is not a rebuke, but an encouragement. The songs we sing should be about God and not as much about us. A line from someone very wise, woman who may or may not be in the room is uh, you know, we, we should sing truths about God rather than lies about ourselves. And I think uh, it's not to say that there isn't a place for I, you know, I will praise you, God. I will, you know, lift my arms and I will stand. You know, those kind of I will praise you songs. Because the psalm, the Book of Psalms actually has a whole heap of those. This psalm here is, you know, starts off with I will praise you. I will do this. All. So there's a place for those kind of psalms, but our focus is it on what we're doing, or is it on God's character, His kingdom, and that He's coming to save. The second conversation is praises and speaking to God. It's also speaking to ourselves. Speaking to ourselves. Uh, verse 5 says, On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. Now, Christian meditation is very different to Eastern meditation or what's quickly becoming Western meditation, uh, which is all about emptying our minds and clearing it so it's a blank slate and there's nothing there. But Christian meditation is not emptying our minds, but filling our minds uh, with all things that are good, holy, perfect. Yeah. It's, it's telling ourselves repeatedly who God is, what His kingdom is like, uh, what He has done for us. It's reflecting and intentionally thinking and telling ourselves to train our minds to observe God's character, His goodness, His mercy, His love. To recognize the greatness and awesomeness of his kingdom, to see his works and to give thanks for it. Last week, um, Martin preached on uh, having a thankful heart and, and um, these, this gratitude journal idea that Karen Crowley mentioned is an awesome idea. And if you're a woman, go along and get started on that to actually get in the habit of meditating and thinking and, and um, giving thanks and reflecting on who. God is. You know, other options might be 
reading and memorizing the scripture that say of who he is and what his kingdom is like. It might be taking notes on a Sunday or in your Bible study and then reflecting on that elsewhere. It might be going uh, for a walk in creation, observing the beauty that God has created and how it reflects God's beauty and glory. Now, of course, uh, everyone's different. We get that. Uh, not everything will work for everyone. But everyone should do something to meditate on the goodness of God. So this conversation with God, it's a conversation with ourselves, it's also a conversation with others. Uh, and this is where I think it's really important when we think about mission. Praise is telling other people. Verse 4 says, One generation shall commend your words to another, shall declare your mighty acts. Verse 6, They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your grace. Greatness. I, will, I shall pour really more on what they are talking about the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. It's all about telling other people. One generation commending God's words to another, declaring his mighty acts, what he's done, who he is. As we praise God and, and position ourselves uh, as God above, um, as we meditate on his character and his kingdom, to a place where we can't help tell other people about it. Praise is not a private activity. It doesn't just involve us and God, it's us, us, God, and others. As the context in singing in church, we sing in church in a, in a group community, not just to express our praise and tell God how awesome he is. It's not just to tell ourselves or remind ourselves how awesome he is, but it's also to encourage others and tell others how great God is. And so to come back to uh, the question I started with, what motivates mission, what, what drives us to tell others about God? You know, absolutely there's a need, and absolutely there's a command, and, and other reasons, but at the core, it's out of praise. It's out of our conviction of God's character, His kingdom, and that He's coming to save that leads us to tell John Piper, a, a pastor from the States, he uh, famously said, mission exists because praise doesn't. And what he means is that there's parts of the world that don't know Jesus, and therefore they don't praise Jesus. And that's, that's not a good thing. And so therefore, we send people around the world to be on mission to places where they don't praise Jesus, so that we can tell them about Jesus, so they'll come to know Jesus and praise Jesus. That's what he means. But I, I think this psalm would add to that Mission exists because praise does. And what, what I mean by that is that God, uh, God's people love Him. They know Him. And they worship Him. And they praise Him. And out of that comes that missional mandate to tell other people of His character, His kingdom, that He's coming to save. Praise is the seed of mission. And what leads us to praise is our conviction. And he's coming to save. And that's what the rest of the psalm kind of explores for us. So let's look at those three things. First is character. You read um, from verse 8. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. I wonder, if you were to think, what does God look for? What do you imagine? What does his, his face look like? 
what's his facial expression? What's his body language like? Uh, Moses, um, from the Old Testament in Exodus, uh, when he went up to Mount Sinai to get the Ten Commandments after the whole, like, on the path of the Bible, he, he asked God uh, to stay, he could see him, that he could actually see God, and amazingly, profoundly, God agrees. He says, I will pass by you, and uh, and you can see my man. And, um, and it was such a powerful and profound experience that Moses, uh, when he came down from Mount Sinai, his face was shining so bright that the Israelites couldn't even bear to look at Moses. And so they had to give a veil how, how great and awesome a sight seeing God was, even just his back. And so, and at that time, at the moment when God passes by, he declares who he is. Who he is. And so how does, how does God want us to know him? What is the core of God's character? And that, and this experience is what, what the psalm draws from. This language, this, this quote is actually from Exodus 34. So I'll read it for you. Uh, Exodus 34, verse 5. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name to the Lord. And that's Yahweh. That's the, the, the if you ever see in the Bible, Lord all caps. That's the personal name uh, for God, Yahweh, or the I am. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. And so before anything else, how does God want to be? What is core to his character is that he's gracious and merciful, loving, abounding in steadfast love. I'm um, I'm in, in, involved in a wedding uh, next week, and um, so I've been thinking a lot about love and um, and that kind of thing. And uh, one of one of the things I'll be saying is is love is not a feeling. It's not something that we feel. But it's actually a verb. Something we do. And, uh, and not just for marriage, but in every relationship, love is something that we need to work on and be active on. It's actually really hard uh, to love people because it does take a lot of work to, to, to give of yourself, to sacrifice of yourself, to, to love, to put them above your own needs and to serve them uh, before yourself. It's, it's hard. It's tough. It's a commitment that we make. And God never grows weary loving he never grows weary. My favorite um, uh, essay by C.S. Lewis, so C.S. Lewis wrote Chronicles of Narnia and like a whole bunch of great Christian books. He's also written a whole bunch of great essays. Uh, so if you're into reading essays, uh, this is a good one. Um, God in the Dock. God in the Dock by C.S. Lewis. He, um, and the whole premise of this is he's referring to a, a courtroom scene where um, uh, the dock is like the defendant's cage, British term, um, where, and then God is the defendant. He's in, he's the one who's accused or that they're judging, and he's in there. The jury is the world, and Christians are the lawyers, like defending God. And, um, and you know, so it's trying to justify his character, trying to, trying to defend God to, to the world, and they get to judge 
whether God is good enough for them or not. And C.S. Lewis paints this picture, and this is what this is what the world's like at times, what it feels like. Uh, you know, God is in the dark. And he says, This is ridiculous. He is the God of the whole universe. He's the king of all things. God is not in the dock. He is the judge. He's the king. And so Christians, we don't need to defend God. We don't need to, to um, change who he is or or uh, you know, share a, a different version of God of who he truly is in order that, that we might like him or that others might accept him. We share the true character of God, that he's loving and merciful. Uh, that that would uh, draw people in. But in sometimes, Christians tend to do one, one of two things. One, sometimes Christians lead out parts of God's character. The fact that he is a just uh, and, and um, holy God. Um, the psalm David says, God is slow to anger. And a lot of people don't like the fact that God gets angry at all. But he's, he doesn't say he doesn't get angry. He's slow to angry. He's a God of justice. Moses mentioned that he doesn't leave the guilty unpunished. Later in the psalm, he says the wicked uh, he will destroy. And this, this part of God's character is, is hard to reconcile. And, and absolutely, I, I get that. It's, it's hard to tell other people about that. But um, it's, it's a very dangerous territory to, to tread down to leave that out. To only paint a picture of God who loves and accepts all things no matter what. Because the Bible is clear that God is a God of justice, that He will judge uh, evil and, and sin. And sin at the heart of it is turning away from God. In a sense, in a very real sense, it's the opposite of praise. It's praise is setting God above ourselves in an act of evil, and sin is setting ourselves above God. It's a, it's a defined act that goes against the very created nature of the universe, that God is God and that we are his creation, that we set ourselves above him. As a world's horrible state to be in, a reversal of the created order. This attitude is, is defined, defines against the creator of the universe, deserves judgment. God will make that right. The Bible's clear on that. But the Bible's also clear that even in uh, in that story where we see um, people again and again, so there's sort of the Babylon and the Five and we see that in history, uh, people who keep putting themselves above God, trying to go their own way, going their own way, and getting in a mess. We see it in the world today, people going their own way, setting themselves above God, and the, the mess that the world is in. And even so, the state that the world is in, the love of God leads him to show us mercy. To forgive us, to call us back to himself, to give us the opportunity to humble ourselves and to call on him that we might be saved. We don't share God's judgment to scare people into heaven. You know, saying that you better believe in Jesus or you're going to go to hell. That, that won't work. That doesn't work. No, we being realistic and honest about the state of the world and the state of our hearts. We share the true character of God that is loving and merciful and draws people in. And we're broken and on a path, and if we're honest, we're on a path that we don't feel like the destination is coming. But there is another way. There's a God who loves us, who cares for us, who will save us. 
And the extent of God's love is seen most clearly on the cross. And God needed to get angry. There, there was this, this defined act of humanity putting themselves above God was, was broken and uh, disturbance to the, the universal order of creation. And it needed to be made right. But God's love led him to come down to earth. That God's love led him to put himself in the position of a human being, even, even submitting himself to death on a cross to take that punishment that we deserve. We see God's character most magnified on the cross. Our God who loves us enough to die for us. And that is the true character of God that we need to tell ourselves. We need to tell ourselves, and that's the true character of God to help others. Now we, we talk about, we tell God's character, we also talk about his kingdom. So from verse 10, you read with me. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of your glory, of your kingdom, and tell of your power, to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds, and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his works, and kind in all of his works. Here we see uh, David telling, telling us, showing that um, what is God's kingdom like? Well, God's, God's people, they, they submit to him, they honor him, they tell others about that kingdom. And he says, um, uh, he, uh, his work, um, sorry, yeah, they, said, they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom, tell of your power. And the reason they do that, the purpose of that is so that the children of men or children of people would know his power, would know the splendor of his kingdom. That people would know and understand what God's kingdom is like. And I wonder, what is God's church, God's people, telling of his kingdom? What are we telling others of his kingdom? What people ask, about, ask us what we did on Sunday, what do we tell them about what we did at church? About how this community is an awesome community of love and we serve the king of all kings. And it's the kingdom that lasts forever. David tells us what this kingdom is like. It's an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion endures for all generations. And isn't that what this world is desperate for? Desperate for a kingdom uh, that, will, that will never fail. A kingdom that will last generations. A king that will not fail or fall. A kingdom that will put our hope in and not be disappointed. It doesn't take much looking at the world around us and men's world politics at the moment to see that this world is desperate for an eternal And as Christians, we are in that kingdom. We serve and love that kingdom. So we should tell others about it. And then finally, uh, we tell others about God's salvation that is coming to save. Uh, reading from verse 14. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hands and you satisfy the desires of every living, living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. 
The Lord is near to all who call him, to all who call him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him, and he hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves, or the Lord protects all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. Now, in this last section, I actually found uh, this section one of the harder to grapple with. And the reason is, is because he gives these grand um, observations and, and lines about God um, satisfying the desire of every living thing. And the question is, do we actually see that? Is that what we can see as we look around the world? In fact, we say God upholds all who are fallen, but so often we feel like we're fallen. We don't see or recognize God carrying us or upholding us. He gives food to the hungry when there's people all around the world starving. Then he satisfies the desires of every living thing when there's so many who are lost, who are hurting, who are hungry. Is this, what's, what's going on here? What's the psalm saying? Now, in understanding, we need to be careful to understand the genre of this passage. Now, this is a song. Uh, it's not a description or a historical account, it's a song. And, and therefore, it's sort of a different purpose. It, it does something else uh, than just telling us exactly what nothing God. Now, I think those three things is first, it shows us the heart of God. It shows us who God cares for. It shows us who God is for. And it's not the one who helped themselves. Uh, it's not the ones who are able to achieve and grow and show off all their works, and therefore God likes them. Who is God for? He's for the lonely, the hungry, the hurting, the broken. They are the ones that God has for, that God loves, that God cares for. Secondly, it gives us hope. It gives us hope. In those moments of darkness and hunger, of hurt, this song reminds us that we have a God who loves us, who cares for us, who enters into the world so that we he could be near us. We know ourselves. And when we cry out to God, He hears us. He hears our cry. So we don't really, we have hope. When everything else goes around the world, those who don't trust in this, trust in God, are worried about this. They're That will eventually get it right. That will eventually find a government that will be stable. That will eventually, uh, you know, technology will develop to a point that will just take over everything. We have a hope in a God who is in control of all things, who hears our cry and has come to save us. And thirdly, this song it makes us humble. Because as we cry out to God, it's an act of praise. It's saying, God, you are greater than me, and I need help. I need help. Uh, I think this is something that's really hard in our culture, in our culture that drives. Uh, this idea of being independent and self-sustaining and being right and, and boasting in our achievements, believing in yourself. Uh, it's a culture that leads us down. Like, have you ever, I wonder, you know, if you're traveling somewhere in a place you don't recognize and your phone's not working so you don't have Google Maps, how quick are we to ask for directions? Right? Not very quick. We're not good at asking for help. We're not good and admitting we are broken, that we don't have something together. 
Yeah, that is the essence of Christianity. We're in a small group early last year. Um, one of the most profound moments of the year. We were talking about stuff, I don't really remember, but um, everyone's chatting and talking over each other and getting ready for this great discussion. But then someone said this amazing line uh, the essence of Christianity is admitting that we're wrong, is admitting that we're wrong and crying out to God to save us. But it's profoundly countercultural that we're saying we don't have it all together. That we are wrong, that we are hurting. Crying out to God to save us, to help us, to feed us, to, to be near us. And God will. And He does. And that's something our world needs to hear. A world in denial that things, things will get better, that as long as we believe in ourselves, um, uh, things will get better. And a world that sets itself above God. We need to hear that God can come and save all of us. Our friends, our family, our colleagues, our neighbors desperately need to call on Jesus, call on the name of the Lord, that they might be saved. And to quote Romans 10, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on the one that they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one whom they have not heard? And how can they hear? without someone preaching to them, someone telling them. And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? That is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring So what is the seed of mission? It's our praise of our King, Lord Jesus. His character, His kingdom, and that He's coming to the Son. His Son is, is amazing and it's a literary genius and it's immense depth. And it gets even better when you realize that this is an acrostic poem. That in Hebrew, the original language, each word starts with a different with the sequential uh, letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And so David was able to pack all this great inside depth theology into an acrostic. But the Bible and these Psalms is, is incredibly profound how um, how literary and, and how genius it is. How beautiful this world is. And so in that light, just to, to end on a theme similar to that, I found an, an English acrostic that kind of captures a similar sentiment to this psalm. Uh, this is one I found, I didn't write, but it, it shares uh, what it's like to, to live as a Christian, to praise Jesus in the world that we find ourselves in. So I'm going to read this, then I'll pray, and then we'll see how it lasts. Although things are not perfect because of trial or pain, continue in thanksgiving. Do not begin to blame. Even when the times are hard, fierce winds are bound to blow. God is forever able. Hold on to what you know. Imagine life without his love. Joy would cease to be. Keep thanking him for all the things that love imparts to me. Moved out of camp complaining. No weapon that is known. On earth can wield the power praise can do alone. Quit looking at the future. Redeem that time at hand. Start every day with worship. To thank is a command. Until we see him coming, victorious 
in the sky will run the race with gratitude, exalting God most high. Yes, there will be good times. Yes, there will be bad. But Zion waits in glory where none might ever stand. Lord God, we praise you. You are gracious and compassionate. You're slow to anger, but you are rich in love. You are good to all. You have compassion on everything you have made. And God, we want to we praise you. We want to worship you. So we pray first and foremost that you would reveal yourself to us. That you would show us uh, yourself. That you would show us who you are. We ask boldly, just like Moses, that you would Reveal to us your character. You would show us what your kingdom is like. That you would you would reveal to us your purpose and plan for this world. That we can worship you and, and remind ourselves and that grow in resilience and grow in reliance on you. Uh, but also, Lord, that we would tell others. And God, we, we pray for those uh, in our lives now who, who don't know you. And that it's it's hard, it's it's scary to to think of, of sharing um, God in a, a religion that's very unpopular. <coughs> we just pray that, that your love and our conviction of who you are would give us boldness. By your Holy Spirit, you fill us to give us words uh, to speak out and to tell others who you are. We pray that we encourage each, up, each other uh, in the church and, and in our fellow brothers and sisters uh, in Christ. <coughs> Tell others about who you are and what you've done and how great it is to be part of your kingdom. And God, we look forward to your eternal kingdom, where you make everything right, and forever I will be joining you in trying to worship you in that good creative order, setting you as the greatest and most awesome thing of all time that we could ever imagine. That we spend the rest of our lives and time worshiping you, praising, singing, celebrating. Awesome that time But in the meantime, Lord, we pray that you would do that for you. Praising you, worship you, telling others about you. For your glory as well. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.